good morning. You can take a seat. My name is Mark Duncan. I'm one of your pastors here, the pastor of students and community relationships. And so I'm so glad that you are with us here this morning, as uh, Pastor Anardi said, to continue in worship as we look at God's Word and what He has to say to us today. If it's your first time here this summer, we've been in a series we've titled One Another. And, uh, and the, the gist, the point of that series is to, to look at the, to how we can live relationally with other people in light of the reality that is ours in the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. Because of what God has done for me in Christ, how does that affect the relationships that I have with other people? And so for the last few weeks, we've looked at how that affects my position in humility to other people. Uh, we've looked at how it allows me to live in harmony with other people, and last week we looked at how it'll, it informs me and models for me how I can forgive other people. And so today, as we continue in God's Word, uh, I think we're going to look at the item this morning that truly is the foundation that informs all of the rest of the responses, because it speaks to the very motivation itself of the gospel, and that is love. And so the command that we're going to look at today is to truly understand what it means to love one another, to love one another. I would say, if you'd ask anyone what would be a reasonable expectation of someone that identifies as a Christian, that they would respond in, in relation to other people, what would it look like? You would say, probably by default, it would be to be loving, right? You expect someone that says that they are a Christian to be someone who is loving. So it's the most readily expected, but also would, would put forward that today, maybe it's also most easily ignored uh, when it comes into actual practice. Right, there's a separation in what is happening here and what happens here. Right? And so this morning, uh, we want to look at, uh, first of all, the author of love and how that informs our response in relationship. Um, I am glad, though, that uh, Aaron uh, mentioned during the announcements uh, the, the tragedy and the overwhelming um, pain that we all feel as a country and the things happening uh, this week. Um, and I just uh, the, try to wrap in your mind around um, how someone is in a headspace, you know, to harm another person. You know, we had kind of a, a real moment in the car uh, the other night. And um, I mistakenly left the news on in the car when traveling with the family, which is probably not a great dad move, um, generally speaking. But uh, as we were driving uh, across the news, uh, one of the articles that was shared, one of the stories was about uh, this horrific uh, tragedy where a father murdered their young child. And... Um, Try to explain that one uh, to your nine-year-old, uh, which is in the car. Like, how, why would that happen? Like, why would a father feel that way? And then I began to, you know, talk about it. I must have said something along the lines of, well, you know, in this, in this day and age, you never know what could happen next. You know, not a very, like, thoughtful answer. And, um, and my, my daughter, quick as a whip, called me on that. She's like, well, Daddy, she's like, doesn't, haven't people been sinning since the beginning of time? And I'm like, I was like, you're, you're not wrong, child. I was like, you're exactly right. I was like, I think when we, when we say something like that, what we are actually trying to say, it comes from a spirit of, of grief, is that as a, as a culture and as a community moves further and further from the understanding of the, the presence and the love of God, suddenly anything is possible on the table, right? Without the, without the guidance, without the model as, as a part of our active part of our life, suddenly anything is an option. And so that sin can spiral and twist and turn into so many different ways. And we don't understand how we got to that point. And so today, though, 
more than ever today, as we, as we look and lean into this, this truth of what it means to love one, and we see that that is the byproduct and also the necessity of every believer to be active in giving that and turning that love out because it has an effect on the community that God has put us in, in relationship. And so uh, this morning, if you've got your Bible with you, I'd love for you to go ahead and turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. And while you are doing that, I'm going to explain why I have a giant table of food over here. All right, Some of you are really hungry. I should have thought through this illustration, actually. Having, having looked at this table already one service, I'm really hungry now. Um, but I want you just to, to imagine for a moment that it's been a long day. All right? It's been a long day. You've been at work all day. It's, been, it's not been a great day. You're super busy. Uh, you didn't even get a time to have lunch. And you get done with work for the day, and you go home. And before you even open up the door, you smell something. Hmm, that's a pleasant smell. And you open up the door and you go inside and you find, to your amazement, that your significant other has prepared an amazing banquet of food. And as you begin to get closer to the table, you recognize that all of the things that are on the table are your very favorites, right? These are the things that you enjoy the most as you're taking it all in, all of the colors and the smells. And you look at that, that amazing person. In my mind, it's my beautiful wife standing there. And you see that smile on her face as, she, as you realize that she has done this for no one but for you. All right, there's one, one place setting at the table, right? Like that's, that's all for me. And, and she encouraged you, sit down. I did this for you. And so you pull out the chair and you sit down at the table and you've, you've got the napkin out here and you're starting to look around and you're grabbing something out of here and you're putting it on the plate. You're grabbing something out of here and some of this and some of that. And some of you I know are like the food mixer types. You like to like blend stuff, right, and taste that. I have rules with my eating, okay, one at a time. But you're sampling all the flavors. You're like, wow, this strawberry is so good. And she's like, yeah, I handpicked those for you. Oh, oh wow, really? Um, and this peach? Yeah, yeah, I went to the orchard and got that for you too. Uh, this bread? Yeah, I worked really hard on that, made it from scratch. I didn't even know you could do that. That's amazing, right? And a cake? Yeah, and all of this stuff? Like, why, like, why did you do that? Like, what is the point of that? She's like, well, I love you. Like, why wouldn't I do that for you? And so I'm beginning to take that in, and I'm eating it and enjoying the meal. And all of a sudden, to my amazement, there's a ring at the doorbell. All right, give me a, give me a ding dong. There you go. Thank you. All right, so I go to the doorbell. I go to the door, and I open it up, and guess what? It's 200 of my closest friends. All right? You showed up at my door, and so being the uh, hospitable person I am, I invite you all inside. I don't know how you're going to fit there, but you all come in, and you grab a seat. And as I'm eating that, I begin to realize, you know what? I have, there's so much here on the table. There's no way I could possibly enjoy all of that. And so out of just sheer compulsion, I'm like, hey, guys, you are not going to believe how amazing this tastes. You know what? Hey, you just take some of this, all right? You need to taste what my wife has done. Look at these rolls. Aren't they perfect? Like, look at this cake. You need to have some of that. Can I get you a plate? You need to try some of this. Why am I excited about that? Why am I excited? Because she did that for me, right? And I can't help myself but want to give that away to someone else. Once I've tasted it, how sweet it is. Once I've wrapped my mind around how much work she put in it, guess what? You just got to try this. You just got to try this, right? It's like nothing you've ever tasted before. And I would position to you this morning, at this table, at least in that context, is representative of the love of God, all right? Richly given, thoughtfully prepared, personally 
prepared for me, right? Invited to the table. It's more than I could ever ask or imagine. It's more than I can truly even enjoy all for myself, but I'm going to try, right? And then I can't help when I taste that, when I recognize what he's done for me, that should have an outpouring. It should flow forward. I should bring people in community with me to taste this, right? You've got to taste it. It's amazing. So this morning, as we look at what the love of God is, we've got to move from this cerebral understanding and concept of what the love of God is into the reality that is ours in the gospel that is a personal relationship, personally bought on my behalf and personally given, and it's personally my responsibility to give it back. And so this morning, would you read with me from 1 John chapter 4? We're going to start reading in verse number 7. Let's read it together. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected through us. This morning, I want to give you one thought to hold on to as we look at three ways that the gospel informs our relationship based on the love of God. I want you to keep this in your back of your mind. The deeper my experience of the love of God personally the deeper will be my desire to give that love communally. All right, what do I mean by that? All right, the deeper I understand the very intricate nature, all right, all of the fine tastes and flavors, if you will, and unique qualities of the love of God, the deeper I own that and, and understand that for me, the more I'm able to give it communally and the people that I have relationship with. It's a natural byproduct of that. All right, I want it to be shared when I've tasted it. So the first one this morning, as we've looked at this passage, is that if we know God, we know what love is. If we know God, we know what love is. And I love that he addressed them in verse 7 as beloved. You know, I think if there's one word I should, I should read off of the pages of Scripture, when I, when I go to, to the Lord in my time with him, each day to study, the, the one word I should keep in my mind as I'm reading these words for me is that he calls me beloved, one who is loved. Right? No matter what else he says after that in the passage, I should start it in my mind and heart with that one word, beloved. Everything I have to say to you, my child, is coming from a place of love to you. Beloved, what's the command? Let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. He's from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. See, God is not just the source of love. It uses much more direct language to say God himself is love. You pull open the dictionary, it should say the word God right by the word love, right? God defines as love. He is love. He is the embodiment of what love is. He's not just like the quality of love. He is the standard for love. He's the picture of what love is. All right, and that picture is, is very multifaceted in the way that God loves. Right? You see God's love 
in, in ways that he calls out for justice. You see God's love in that he addresses sin in our life. You see God's love in the way that he sacrifices and patience and kind. It's a beautiful, multifaceted thing. He is love. Everything he does is from love. It's not that God is just a loving guy. All right, here's the thing. You and I sometimes can be loving. Sometimes. Early in the morning before I've had my coffee, I'm not very loving. Just be honest, all right? Maybe not super hospitable if you ring my doorbell, you know, at 6 a.m. Just saying. All right, I can be loving, though, sometimes. But guess what? God doesn't just like loving some of the time. He is love. He's consistently love. Those who are loved, as it says there, bear witness to who, holds them in, who they hold in their heart. Once you've tasted personally of that love, you can't help but give it in relation with people. So if God is the embodiment of what love is, what are some of those unique qualities that would define godly love? I want to turn, have you turn to a passage. Hold your place there in 1 John and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to read a passage of Scripture which somehow has been labeled a wedding passage, okay? Like every time someone wants to get married, that's an option that pops up. You're like, right, can we do 1 Corinthians 13? All right, so somehow it's just relegated to weddings. Here's the reality. It's a, it's a passage about what love is and as, as love is God defined. And so we need to look at that this morning and see some of these things that define what God's love looks like. 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to read in verse number 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And I'm not throwing the, uh, the newlyweds or the people getting married under the bus for picking this passage, but the reality is often when entering a true relationship and looking at it through that lens, we have very, a very doe-eyed perception of what that means when we come to the altar, right? right? To say things like, it, like it's an easy thing to say that love is patient and kind, you'll just wait, right? <laughs> like anybody that's been in a relationship long enough, just you wait. Like it's only a matter of time before you realize just how little patience you actually have in that relationship, All right? And kindness Kindness? It would be like a default, like you would think you'd be kind to that person you're so close to, but yet they're the, person, the people we often hurt the easiest, right? Hurt the quickest. Uh, it's not patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Man, I don't know about you, but like I, I'm very clued in to what my own way is, you know, and, and I can use all manner of tools in the, uh, in the toolbox to get other people to see my way, all right? I don't think that's done in love. That's manipulation, you know? That's manipulation to get someone to see that. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't look out for itself. Love doesn't make demands on someone else to come to me, all right? It, it, it gives. It's giving. It's submission. It's not irritable and resentful. It's not bitter about it when, well, I guess we're going to go that way because you came up with it, but I really liked my idea, right? That's not love. Yet these are qualities of God's love. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices at the truth. You know, this is, a, this is a tricky one, too. We talked about this one a few weeks ago. We talked about harmony. Sometimes it's really difficult to know the line uh, when there's someone that I care about, that I'm in relationship with, that is living far from what God would have them to do. There's a line in understanding how do I truly love them, but at the same time, like, I don't want to, like, validate the thing that is hurting them, right? Like, that's what it's talking about there, love Love is going to 
rejoice with the truth. All right? It's, it can't possibly celebrate something that is destroying somebody. All right? But it, they can love the person. All right? But they're never going to tell a lie about it. They're going like, to be able to say what it is. This is the thing that's hurting you. But then this is the part that's like the sledgehammer you know, at the altar when people are having this read over them before a wedding. Right? Like the, the, these last three. Uh, those last four, love bears all things. We should have stopped there. I think from now on, when someone requests this passage in a wedding, I'm just going to read that part, all right? And then like say, all right, like, do you, do you? Yes, yes, okay, you're pronounced, you go on. All right, that's really it. Love bears all things. How many things is all things? Do you find any exceptions to the rule there? I don't, right? God's love, godly love, is willing to bear or to carry the weight of all things. I'd say most of us, like, we could feel confident we could carry a burden a certain distance, but we always have, like, a line in our mind that we draw. It's like, well, I'll go with you up to this point, but if you step over this line, I can't go with you anymore. That's not how God loves. And frankly, I'm thankful that's not how he loves, because I wouldn't know him. If that were the case, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. It never ends. We talk about the many facets of God's love. This is just a handful. If I went through all of the passages in Scripture that define how God loves, we'd be here for like a month going through Scripture. All right, because this is a love story that is personally written to you and to me. All right? That's, it's all coming from that. Because why? God is love. That's what he does. That's who he is. It's God defined. The love of God literally is a banquet table of delight that's to be enjoyed by those that are the objects of his affection. Who is that? Me and you. And he has lovingly prepared kindness, graciousness, mercy for me, forgiveness, patience, bearing with me. It's like he's setting the table. It's like he's straightening the silverware, and he's pouring the wine, laying out the napkin. Why is he doing it? Because he's doing it because he loves me. The love that I have for other people demonstrates that God has become the object of my affection and worship. See the difference there? He gives to me because I am the object of his affection. And then as I understand that, because I know him, it says, if you don't love, you don't know God. If I know God, I understand his love. If I understand that, now he becomes the object of my affection and worship. And I can't help but share that, right? To know God is to know love, because you cannot separate God from love. You look at that in the passage there. Some pretty harsh language. It says in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. I'm going to tell you, someone who claims to be a Christian, yet has no space or compassion for other people, you've got to really seriously question if that person actually understands the good news of the gospel. And loved one, if that's you this morning, I'm not trying to weigh you down with, and burden you, but I'm asking you, it's like, is, there, is it possible uh, is it possible that your vision has been cloudy to the love that God has for you? Is it possible that somehow you have taken a bumper sticker approach 
right, to God loves you, right, we just slap that out there. You have, you have generalized this, this idea of God is love and God gives love, and somehow you've disconnected the personal aspect of that, that God set the table for you. Not just like generally in all counts, but it was also very personally and thoughtfully set for you. That's the love that God has for you. When you understand that, when you depend on that, when you live in that reality, he becomes the object of your affection and you can't help but share him. So this morning, how does your love for others bear witness to the true object of your affection this morning? See, it'd be kind of rude if I invited you into my house in that scenario. And as you came in and I made sure you were seated, I sat down at the table and I'm like, you know what, guys? Um, I'm so glad you came over. Uh, I'm going to be a little while, uh, probably a couple hours, um, working on some stuff. But you guys just sit over there and uh, I'll be with you shortly. And I just start eating while you're sitting there looking at the food, wondering what's going on. Right? And yet I think... I don't just think I know this is true, that you and I often live in that same reality. Like we are feasting, feasting on the banquet that is God's love, ourself. And somehow we've disconnected the reality that other people should be coming to the table. That that, that message, that, that taste is so sweet that someone else may want that. And I'll tell you, like, that's not truly actually knowing God at all. Are your taste of godly love seen in your relationships with people? Are they picking up the nuances of God's love as they see you living in reality and they see you serving them and getting to know them and bearing with them and being patient and kind with them? The deeper I have tasted personally, the more I want to give away. Let's continue on here. Verse number 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the second item this morning as we reflect on how this gospel reality informs my relationships in loving others. When we know what love is, we know what love does. Or maybe a better way to say that is when we know what love is, we know that love does, all right? Love is not something that is purely spoken, but is something that is acted upon, all right? I'm going to give you another illustration. Say I came home, and my wife is standing there, as beautiful as she is, and just says, I love you, but there's no dinner on the table, all right? It's like, well, you know, that's fine, right? Tonight, I'll, I'll make the dinner, all right? It's not all about the food, but if like, what if the only interactions I have with my wife ever were just her telling me the words, I love you. I love you. All right? Some of you are like, well, I'm one of those like five love languages, words of affirmation people, so you can just tell me I love you all day and I'm good. All right? But here's the reality. That's not actually true. All right? Uh, not going against Dr. Chapman. He's a great guy. All right? But here's the thing. We all need, we all need demonstrations of the love to back up the words. All right. The way that I actually know my, my wife loves me in, in this scenario is she says it with her mouth, but she's proven it with her actions. She's proven it with the amount of time she put into thinking through all of the details, to the cooking, to the preparation of the meat and the, and the bread, to getting it ready on time. 
That's the demonstration of the love, right? What we have here in verse 9 is the demonstration of the love of God towards us. I want to draw your attention to that word propitiation. You better understand what that means. That propitiation, not a word we use very often. It literally means to appease. Okay? And so my reality before a holy God, before Jesus Christ, is that I am at odds with God. I'm in rebellion against God's will and God's best for my life. And I'm trying to be my own God. Right? I am the object of my own affection. All right? For another way to say that. Because of that, there is wrath on me. Right? God's wrath is on me, not because he's ticked off at me and hates me, but it's because of the sin that is now separating us. All right? there's, a, there's an obstacle in our relationship. Right? He, can, he loves me, but there's an obstacle. You know, anyone that's ever had a family member that has struggled with a, a terminal illness you know, or cancer or something like that, like you, you recognize, like, well, that person is going through what they're going through. You love them. You, you hurt for them. You're crying with them. You're compassionate for them, but you hate the cancer. You hate the thing that, that's taking away their life, the thing that's, that's draining the life from them. And you pray that it will be taken away when that doctor comes in and takes that thing out. The problem has been removed and all that stands between you. There's nothing between you anymore, right? There's nothing between them and experiencing what life is. That's what propitiation means. When it says that God sent his son to be propitiation, it says Jesus came to stand in the gap that I could not fill when I was not even inclined to fill it, and he appeased the wrath of God for me. And so on that hill, when he was on that cross, as he's saying the words, it is finished, and the Father has turned his face away because he cannot look on Jesus as he puts all of the wrath upon him. In that moment, he says, it is finished. It truly was finished, and God's wrath was gone for those that believe and accept what Jesus did. That's what it means to propitiate. See, that, this is love that is not uh, simply an emotional feeling. This is love that is not just words. It is love that is turned into action. All right, so I'm going to put this forward today. God's love is seen where deep affection meets definitive action. God's love is truly seen in the lives of his people where deep affection meets definitive action. It's one thing to say, I love my brother in Christ. It's another thing to actually walk with him and suffer with him and give to him and support him in life. That, that's action. That's where that, that faith gets feet, right, and walks. God didn't just say he loved you and me. He demonstrated. That's what that word made manifest means among us. All right, God's like, I'm putting reality to match the words that I've already said, and I'm going to give you everything I have. He sent Jesus to give his life so that I might have life. You know, before that, the Bible says, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. It's kind of like, like a zombie, right? Like, like moving, existing, but not truly understanding what it means to be alive. And in that moment, when Jesus stepped in my place, I was, be able, to, I was able to be made alive in him. That's why Jesus had to come. You may be like, wow, I thought, what is this talk about wrath and God's judgment? I thought God was love. Didn't you already say that? Well, here's the problem. Not the problem. This is the reality. As much as God is loving, God is also just and fair, okay? And that's important because if God simply forgot about sin, just be like, you know, it's no big deal, 
All right, that would make him not just and fair. And if he's not just and fair, how in the world can we trust anything he has to say? All right, so when he's, he's like, I have to address this because I'm a fair and loving God. If I'm not fair, then I'm not loving. And right? I'm not loving to you if I'm not fair. So in love, he had to address it by sinning himself. And I love that he said that this love was made manifest among us, right? You know that name that we always bring out at Christmas time for Jesus that we somehow don't say any other time of the year? Emmanuel. It literally means God with us. God's like, if, if I'm going to appease that, that gap, that wrath, that, that's rightly yours, I'm going to have to come where you are. I'm going to have to leave my place and come to your place. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So that we might have fellowship with the Father. God sent Jesus to take definitive action against my sin. So shouldn't that, shouldn't that truth fundamentally change our understanding of God's love towards us? Shouldn't it, though? I think there's a disconnect, though, between our head and our heart sometimes, right? Like, we talk very generically about the love of God, as we already said, but we've forgotten, we've forgotten what it, it tastes like. You know, in the book of Revelation... Jesus wrote letters to uh, the churches at that time, and, the, and there was one church there, the church at Ephesus, that he had something interesting to say. You see, uh, the church of Ephesus spent a, a, a many verses in that, that letter telling them how many things they had been doing right. right. You've done so many good things. I've seen the works that you do. I've, seen, I've heard the things that you say. I see the way that you live in your communities. Like, but I have one thing against you. One thing. You know what that thing was? He says, you've lost your first love. You've lost that, that first taste. You know, this is a, a poor illustration. I can't remember the first time that I've tasted pizza, okay? And here's the thing. I'm a student pastor, so I've eaten a lot of pizza, all right? So I should get a break, all right? That's pretty much like every other meal, I feel like, all right? I've had it so much. It's been so accessible to me that I cannot remember the first time that I picked up that first slice of amazing golden dough with that tomato sauce and the cheese and the pepperoni and all the toppings. If you weren't hungry, now you are, right? And then put that up to my lips. I can't remember. Why? Because I've gotten so familiar with it. I've lost the taste. And I think that's where we fall. I think that's where that head and heart disconnect comes from. We've just become accustomed to the message of the gospel, singing about God's love, talking about God's love, and somehow it's disconnected from here. And so this is what I want to do for you this morning. I want to give you a chance to reconnect that, all right? Hold your place there, and you don't even have to turn to this. I want you to bring up John 3, 16, all right? Probably the most well-known Bible verse in the history of Bible verses, right? I mean, you see it everywhere. It's on cars, on buildings. It's at NASCAR races. It's everywhere, okay? So very common verse. You probably even maybe memorized it as a kid in vacation Bible school if you grew up in the South. So no doubt, it's common, it's understood. So let's just look at that together. This is what it says, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You're like, yeah, I know that, I've heard that, I could quote that. Now this is what I want you to do. We're going to read that together, but this time I want you to swap out the words the world with your name with your name. And I want you to say that he gave your name his only son. That your name 
If your name believes in him, your name should not perish but have eternal life. Can we read that together? Right, let's try it right here. Here we go. For God so loved Mark that he gave Mark his only son, that if Mark would believe in him, Mark would not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing and personal? All right, we've got, we've got to, to realize that the, the personal connection to the relationship to understanding God's love is what, it, is what makes the difference. The gospel can't just be a, a nebulous idea that I ascribe to. It's got to be a, a personal relationship that I am involved in. Let it not be said of us that we have forgotten that first love. As you read that verse just a minute ago, do you see any part in there that, that, that Mark asked for God to do that? Did you see that anywhere in that verse? Did you see any part that it said that I wanted God to do that? Did you see any part in that verse that said that I earned that or I deserved for God to do that? No, you don't, do you? Because the reality is like God, God did all the work. And I think we have uh, subscribed to this idea in relationship that if uh, love is like a game of give and take, right? You know, a lot of times it's ascribed to marriage. Like marriage is a, is a game of give and take. And I just want to tell you, that's baloney. That's baloney in, in light of the gospel because the, re, the reality is marriage is actually a, a game and every relationship is a game of give and give and give and give in light of the gospel. That's what it is. All right? It's giving. It doesn't stop giving. There's no, there's no finish line for who, now it's your turn to give. It's a game of give and give and give. It's an exercise. It's a discipline. That's God's model. We love one another because we have seen a very real demonstration of God's love to us. We've seen it demonstrated, and that demonstration caused me to want to demonstrate it. Amen? So what have you forgotten about this morning? What have you forgotten about the way that God's love is demonstrated for you on a daily basis? Are you guilty of simply knowing about that but not tasting it for yourself? Psalms 34, 8 says, I love this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? It's an invitation. It's God's, like, God's like, you don't think I love you? Just give me a chance, show you. You know what I have prepared for you today? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, now that we know what love does, what do we do with that? All right, let's go back to verse 11, there in 1 John 4. Beloved, there's that word again, there's that word again, those that are loved. Beloved, if God loved us, or so loved us, if he loved us like this, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You know, the more that I would understand the, the work and the detail that went into preparing the individual components of this meal, the more excited I am to tell other people about it. Guys, do you realize it took her four hours to make this? Four hours. Like, what in the world? Like, I'm not worth that. Like, just give me some, like, microwave stuff and I'm good to go, right? She spent four hours on making this for me. I can't help but sharing that with someone. It says there in verse 11 that we, if God loved us like that, that's sacrificial, only motivated on his side. If he loved us like that, we also ought to love one another. We ought to, right? That's the natural response. That's the natural response. We ought to do it. It shouldn't need to be a command. 
right? But he, he calls us to anyway. Why do we do it, though? And he gives us the answer. He gives us the why. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. Just pause there. You know, that actually in itself is an act of love, too. And you're like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, okay, here's the reality. After Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, chose to sin and rebel against God, in that day, God removed his presence from fellowship with the man and the woman. See, before that, they used to walk together in the garden. It was an amazing thing, right? We have not experienced that level of closeness to God since that time. Someday we'll be with him, right? We'll get to experience it. But they, they lost that. And that was actually an act of love. That wasn't God you know, pitching a, a, a fit and complaining because they didn't like him anymore. That was an act of love because God knew if he stood in their presence and truly let them behold the fullness of his glory, you know what it would do to them? kill him on the spot because God's holiness cannot exist in the same space of sin and so when it says no one has ever seen God that in itself is an act of love for God not to put that on them but what does he do instead verse 12 if we love one another guess what God abides in us all right so it says no one has ever seen God how do they see God through the ones in which he abides. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected or completed in us. See, he, his love is on display. He's all about demonstrating, displaying his love, first in Jesus on the cross and now through us. We're the visible, tangible demonstration of God's love. You ever thought about that? When people look for God, who understand that to, to, it's the greatest skeptic, the, the, the thing that they can't reconcile their mind around, is how truly someone that has a relationship with God and, and is, is loving, and, and loving like God loves, and persistently patient with them, or persistently dealing with their questions, and serving them, and giving for them over and over and over again, they can't quite wrap their mind around, what is the angle? All right, this, surely there's an angle here somewhere. They must be trying to get something over on me. And then they find out it's truly like they're doing this because they love God. That's hard to reconcile. I don't have an explanation for that. So when it says that the love of God is perfected in us, that completed love, what does God's completed love look like on display? The love of God is perfected in us when it accomplishes the same goals for which it was given. The same goals for which it was given. Did I ever say that third point? I think I skipped one there, didn't I? <laughs> Sorry, guys. I said it at the first service, okay? All right, when we know what love does, we know how love grows. All right, that's the third one for those of you who are like, I've got to write that down, okay? When we know what love does, we, we know how love grows, right? The completeness of God's love is completed when it accomplishes the goals for which it was given. What was the goals that God gave love to us to bring us into community with him? And so it talks about being the perfection of that. When we are, in, when the Spirit is, is dwelling in us and we are living in, in reality and trusting in that love that God has shown us in the gospel, and that takes an outpouring to those that are around me, well, all of a sudden that has come full circle. What do I mean by that? It's like, so God loves me as the object of his affection. As I see the demonstration of his love towards me, in turn, I am co compelled to make him the object of my affection, right? That's one circle, right? Now, as I love God right here, and I meet you in relationship over here, because of my love, 
You see God, and now he can become the object of your affection. You see how that works? It always goes back to him. That's what it means to be perfect and complete when it comes full circle and does what it's sent forth to do. The fullness of God's love is complete when love forms a community. When love forms a community. Again, that's why the church is so amazing. It's amazing because as we sit here this morning, and I know not everyone in this room may have that relationship with Jesus Christ yet. I pray that this will be the day. But many of us here claim to live under that name and in the reality of that love that God has proclaimed to us. The fact that we are together is a visible demonstration. All the flavors and varieties of God's love manifested in this place, in this city. Crazy to think about. We're the banquet table for Winston-Salem of God's love. Us. As we abide in him, it pours out from us. Man, can I get an amen on that one? Let's go. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If there should be one place in all anywhere in the world, that love should be given freely. It should be among the people of God. We understand that what love does and how it grows, it grows as God continues to become the object of worship and affection in the hearts of people. And he does that as his love is on display and demonstrated in us, in me. This morning I just want to ask you to Close your eyes for a second, bow your heads. I'm going to ask you, is there a disconnect somewhere between your head and heart this morning when it comes to the love of God? First, I want to ask you, do you understand God's love for you is a personal thing? It's, it's not generic. It's specifically prepared for you. Jesus was not just generically sent for the world. Jesus was sent to this world for you to propitiate God's wrath so that you could be in community. If you're here this morning, you say, I believe that, I understand that, but yet you don't have compassion for other people. I'm not asking you if you're a people person. It doesn't give you a pass if you're an introvert. Right? I'm an introvert. If you don't love people, has the object of your affection somehow become yourself as you feast on the benefits of the love of God? I say this in love, but you need to repent this morning of a hardened heart. And like the church at Ephesus, you need to remember your first love today. Would you pray with me, Father? Father,